If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. We've been going through Genesis uh, from, from the beginning. This is where we are at this point. So I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 27. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, shall be, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his, for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that we are but dust, that you have formed. Less than that, Lord, we recognize that we are dust that have been formed into humans that have rebelled against a good and holy God. But God, we take heart because we see here even in Genesis that you make promises. You make covenants of full and final redemption. And God, you do not leave us to ourselves. You lead us. You guide us. You reveal your will to us. And God, I pray that everyone here would, would just get a little bit of insight into what's going on here between you and Abraham all these years ago. And that, God, they would be inspired in some way to not waste their lives, to not float through this life as though you are not directing them. God, do this through your word, by the power of your spirit. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. I've uh, actually been studying this text at some level for probably the past like four weeks or so. Uh, I knew that I wouldn't be preaching for a while because Rosalind was going to be born and we had missionaries even coming before that. And so I've sort of just been thinking over this text, playing it over and over in my head and uh, one of the, the main things I like to do as I study God's Word is I, I don't like for just mere facts to, to, to come out to me on, off of these pages. Okay, this is what God said to Abraham. Boom, there it is. I know it now. What I like to understand is why did God say that? Why did God put this in His Word? How come we are now 4,000 years removed uh, still reading about this? And so that's what I kind of want to draw out to you today. And so I was thinking that over the past few weeks, and something struck me. It's interesting, if you think about it, it's been true in every age, but, but here's, here's just a, a general rule that I've seen play out. People, people want to know what they should do to make their life and their future better. 
People want to know, what, what should I do? How, how should I, you know, uh, work my life? How, sh- how can I be more successful? How can I make my life more enjoyable in some way? How can I have a better today and a better tomorrow, a better future? You might say, well, how do you know that, Jeff? You know, maybe, maybe you don't believe me. Let's just think about some current trends that are going on. Again, these have been going on forever, but here are current things. Have you ever heard of a life coach? This is a real thing. There are life coaches that make a lot of money. And what do they do? Just what it sounds like. They coach you in how you should live your life. Here's the job you should take. Here are the relationships you should have. Here's how you should respond in this situation. Here's how you can put yourself forward. Have you ever heard of life hacks? These are kind of a big thing uh, on the internet especially. You see these life hacks, and basically what they are is they're telling you how you've been doing everything wrong your entire life. Uh, You know, you've been using regular household items completely wrong, and so now here is the better way to do it. Here is the way to make your life more comfortable and better by, by, by living in this way. And it might even be things, you know, as small as... Here's how you should be peeling an apple, but it also might be things as big as here's how you can land that next job. Here's how you can get that big raise. Here's a life hack on how you can present yourself to your bosses. You think about other things going on. Uh, As a a pastor, I see a lot of this, uh, but there are uh, seminars, you know, big, big presentation seminars for every area of life. You know, we have blogs, we have self-help books, and we, we just, you just go on and on and on, and people want to know, what should I do with my life? And while I'm not saying any of these things are, are wrong in and of themselves, it's possible that they're, they're missing something. All of those were kind of innocuous, right? But I think they, they show uh, a trend that people just want to know what to do with their lives, but they, they don't feel like they have the power. They don't feel like they have the guidance they need. I'm going to give you one more proof. Uh, I I had to research this, but according to a 2016 report, on average, people spend around $2 billion a year on fortune-telling. Worldwide, on average, $2 billion a year go to fortune-telling. That is psychics, palm reading, tarot card, uh, you know, mediumship, aura readings, and astrology, and all, all these different ways that people can say, how should I live my life? I need to know what's coming up so that I can know how to react and respond to it and make my life better, how, how I should live to make the most of my life. But again, uh, definitely in that instance, What if people are looking in the wrong place? What if people feel like they're floating and they need guidance, so they're they're grabbing wherever they can, life coaches, life hacks, seminars, even fortune-telling? And what if none of those are going to lead them where they want to be? Well, I think uh, it's kind of telling in that same report that I read about fortune-telling, it said that the large majority of customers were agnostic. That means that they believe there's a God out there. He just can't actually tell you anything. He can't do anything. He can't intervene in any meaningful way. And so, again, these people feel like they're floating in, in this world, have, have no real guidance. They don't know what to do. And so they, they, they reach out for these vain paths. And as I thought about this, I, I realized this isn't just a secular problem. This is a Christian problem, too. Uh, How many people do you know that are just so worried about the future? Or there's the opposite end, really, of people that aren't at all worried about the future. They don't really care. They, you know, I'll die one day, whatever. They don't really care if God has a will for their life. God has a desire for the way they could be living. So that's what I want to look at today. We need to just recognize right here, right now, that as humans, we are created by God, and therefore we have a responsibility to to receive and to to know and understand God's will for our lives and to obey it. Now, I'm not talking about God's secret will, you know, his will of decree, the things that will happen no matter what we do. You look at Ephesians 1, 11, talks about uh, these decreed things, the counsel of his will. What I'm talking about is God's revealed will. 
This, this is the will that God wants you to know about and that you need to know about. I'm talking about the things that he commands us to do, right? That's what the world sees us as, is only as a list of do's and don'ts. I mean, we should at some level recognize it as the same. You know, this does tell us what we should do and what we should not do. It does give us that guidance. In addition, you see uh, in God's word principles. Just principle after principle after principle. There is not a single, uh, you know, chapter of this book that could, you can't deduce a principle out of for how you could live your life in God's will in the way that he wants you to live. And I'm also talking about the things that God speaks to us by his spirit. Yes, we're reading God's word. Yes, we're praying to him and we're seeing these commands and we're seeing these principles, but that doesn't tell us what we should do. You know, should I be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, a teacher or it doesn't tell us those things. And we we recognize that God, the spirit can lead us, can guide us into his will. He can even impress upon us, you know, other things, more powerful things. Hey, you should talk to this person. You should do this. Hey, you need to give up that habit. These are things that aren't specifically in God's word, but God, by his spirit, reveals to us. And that means for us, especially as Christians, it is our responsibility that we, we figure out what his will for our lives is and that we do it. Again, I'm talking about his revealed will. And the beauty of this is, the beauty of this is, is that if we will seek out God's will, and if we will, I'm using the word will a lot, I know that's confusing, if we will seek out God's desire for our life, and then if we will do what God desires for our life, everything, everything really will go better. Now, we need to talk about what that better means, right? I'm talking about in an ultimate sense of that word better. But does it not follow that the God of the universe who created this world, who created you, who created minds, who created jobs, set up government, set up all these things, that he could tell you how to live best in this world? That the God who has wired you in a particular way has given you particular gifts that doesn't it make sense that he could lead you down the right path? It's so imperative that we not be just drawing from the self-help of the world, the life hacks of the world, but this, this well of life that God has for us, this, this book that guides us, this spirit that guides us. And I would say even uh, for fathers, this is so important for your, you, for us fathers. I feel the weight of this. God has placed me and placed you, fathers, over your household, over your family. And that means that if, if you're leading outside the will of God, the revealed will of God, then your whole family is sort of fallen outside of that as well. And we, we really want to be in the will of God and leading our families in the will of God, this revealed will. So let's look at this with Abraham here in chapter 17 of Genesis. We'll see how God reveals his will to Abraham. And then we'll look at this interaction between Abraham and God that I think we can uh, learn something from. So God reveals his will to Abraham, and Abraham listens. That's my first point. If you want to write anything down, God reveals his will, and Abraham listens. Both of those are very important principles. We see that in verses 15 and 16. I read this at the beginning, but we'll, we'll end up going through all of these again. Starting in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, there, so God is speaking, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall, shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. That's what we'll pause for a moment. So God's revealing something, isn't he? What's going on here? You have to remember the context, right? Chapter 16 was, was 13 years earlier, but that's the whole scandal with Hagar. That Sarai says, hey, we're not having kids. I, I, I want a kid, so why don't you just uh, take my, my maid, my, her Egyptian servant, uh, why don't you take her as your wife, and maybe we can have a child through her. And they do. Abraham takes this second wife, 
this, this Egyptian servant, Hagar, and they have a child. Uh, Ishmael is born. And so maybe at this point, we, we don't really know what Abraham was thinking. You know, God has been silent, by the way, for 13 years between chapter uh, 16 and chapter 17. And so Abraham might have concluded two things at this point. Okay, God promised me a child. The child wasn't coming, so we kind of concocted our own scheme. We might call it by the flesh they concocted this scheme for having a child. And he might think one of two things. Well, maybe, maybe this child that I had with Hagar is good enough, right? I mean, it's my offspring, and God uh, hasn't specifically said who I would have this child with, so maybe this was good enough, and maybe that's why God's not talking to me anymore. But he also might have concluded something else. Maybe God was silent for 13 years because God was done with him. <laughs> he knew he wasn't supposed to take his wife's servant as a second wife. It was very clear in Genesis that a man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his singular wife. And he had gone outside of God's revealed will for marriage. And so he thinks maybe God is now no longer going to keep his covenant. But that's not what we see happen. We, have, we see God talking, saying, yes, this covenant will happen. That was the beginning of chapter 17. Here is the sign of that covenant. Well, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Here is the sign of that covenant. It will be circumcision. And now God's telling him, hey, this child is not going to be through Hagar. It is going to be through your wife, your first wife, Sarai. And he changes her name even uh, to set it up. I, I don't want to talk about this too much. It's much less uh, significant than Abraham's change of name. Sarai and Sarah actually mean the same thing. They both mean princess. And it's kind of going along with uh, Abraham's uh, name. He was exalted father, then he's the, the father of many, is his new name, Abraham. And now she's the princess, you know, alongside this, this father of many. She is going to be the princess beside him, but that was already her name, princess. So why would God change her name? I, I, I think it is basically, uh, it's not so much the difference in the meaning of the name here, like it was with Abraham, but it's actually that God is singling out Sarah, as we talked about. This is the first time, you can read through it, this is the first time God reveals that the child of promise will come through Sarai, not any other woman. And this is going to have to be public, right? You can't just secretly change your name. People have to call you something. You tell people your name. And so this is the, the name change that's going on here. God speaks to him, to Abraham, and Abraham listens. And we'll, we'll see him reply to God here in a moment. But I even want to draw out this principle once again is this is not generally the way that God talks to you and I these days. Uh, we don't even know exactly uh, what's going on here. It says that the Lord appeared to him in 17.1. The Lord has yet to appear to me in a physical manifestation. Uh, but he did here to Abraham. And God speaks to him. God reveals his will to him. But I want to tell you, God has not stopped speaking. Although he does not reveal himself uh, physically in general, he reveals himself continually in his word. We don't have to wait for God to appear to us in 13 years uh, if God stops talking to us. We can just turn right back to his word and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? You even think about Abraham's life. He screwed up in chapter 16. He, he sleeps with his wife's maid, takes her as a second wife, has a kid outside of God's plan. We have a distinct advantage over him. He had to wait 13 years to hear from God again. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself outside of the revealed will of God, jump right back into God's word and pray and say, God, show me where I got off track. Show me how to get back on track. Listen to God because he is speaking. Listen to God because he is speaking. And so I kind of ask just by way of reflection, how many of you are uh, reading God's word? Hopefully you're reading God's word at all. But how many of you are reading God's word as though he's speaking to you? As though he is revealing himself to you? He's revealing his will for your life. 
How many of you sit under the preaching of God's word like you're here right now as though God is speaking to you? It's an interesting thing to think about. So God reveals and Abraham listens. The next thing we see happen here is Abraham makes a request and God responds. That's number two, if you would like to write anything down. Abraham makes a request of God, and God responds to him. <clears throat> we'll look first at that, that request, verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So what, what's Abraham saying here? Right? So he's reflecting. He's thinking, okay, I am 100 years old. Later in the New Testament, it tells us that he recognized that he was as good as dead reproductively. He recognized that about himself. Okay, I, my body is as good as dead reproductively. My wife is 90 years old, not exactly uh, prime childbearing age, and she's barren. We've been married for all these years. We've been trying for all these years, decade after decade after decade, and it's pretty clear here that she is barren. I uh, get together with Hagar, and I immediately have a kid. That was 13 years uh, before, but I, I've been with her all this time. and She isn't having a kid, so he's, he's kind of questioning this, and so he says here, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, God. What's he asking there? What he's saying is, God, now I, I, I hear you that you, you would like to ha have this child of promise to come through Sarah, but what do you say, maybe we just make Ishmael the child, Right? Isn't he good enough? I, I like the kid. I'm sure he does. He's a dad, you know. God, we already waited so, so long even to have Ishmael. Can't, can't he be enough? God, I, I know we took this into our own hands, but, but can't you just make this one work out? God, I really, really don't want to go through the trouble of waiting again. It, it was stressful last time. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So he makes this request of God. I kind of want to dig into something here as we think about the will of God for a moment. Was this bad of Abraham to do? I mean, was this bad for him to say, God, you're saying that the heir is going to come through Sarah, but can it just have come through Hagar? Was this wrong for him to do? My answer is definitively, maybe and maybe not. <laughs> there you go. I mean, because we don't know uh, what's going on in his heart. We don't know his posture towards God exactly. God doesn't rebuke him. So we sense that him making this request was not necessarily a bad thing. <clears throat> Let me just give you a couple examples here. I'm not even going to read the passages. I'll, I'll just tell you about them. But here's some bad examples of people making requests of God. You might remember in the book of Jonah, God tells him, go to, to Nineveh, right? He uh, runs from God. He ends up in the belly of a large fish, spit up, and then he goes to Nineveh. Great obedience right there. And then Nineveh repents, and they are not destroyed. He goes, and this is what he requests of God in chapter 4. God, it is better that I not live. <laughs> Just let me die. That's in uh, verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 of, of the book of Jonah. And God rebukes him for that. He's like, are you kidding me? You're so mad that I save these people, that I'm merciful? That was a bad request. So was it bad of Jonah? Yes, it was bad of Jonah to make that request that he dies, so that he doesn't have to see these people, the Ninevites, uh, live in salvation. Another example would just be Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Uh, you know, an angel appears to him. The angel Gabriel appears to him and says, You will have a child. They had been childless and they were of old age. And he says, How is it that we shall have a child? And he gets rebuked pretty hardcore by the angel Gabriel. You can see that in Luke chapter 1. He's like, Dude, I stand in the presence of God and I am telling you 
<laughs> that you're going to have a child. How dare you question this? And uh, you might remember he, Zechariah is made mute until the promise is fulfilled, right? So we know that that was bad in his posture of faithlessness to God. But we think of some not bad examples of, of requests being made to God. I can think of quite a few. I think of God saying, hey, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel out here in the wilderness, right? They, they have made me mad for the last time. And what happens? Moses goes right back up the mountain and says, God, please protect them. Wipe, wipe me out. If you're going to wipe them out, wipe me out too. And, you know, and God actually honors that request. Another example would be uh, our, our, our man Paul. I've got some pretty high respect for Paul, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, it tells us that Paul has a thorn in his flesh. This is some sort of affliction, a messenger of Satan, it actually says. And Paul repeatedly asks God, requests of God, God, would you remove this affliction from me? God, it doesn't make sense to me that I have this affliction. I, I want to serve you. I want to, to be this missionary. I want to do your work. God, please remove this affliction. And finally, after Paul asks for the third time, God basically tells him to stop asking nicely. I mean, and we'll, we'll go further into that here in a moment. But God tells him, no. It's okay that you've requested this, but, but the answer is no. And then... If we wonder, is it okay to question God's revealed will sometimes? There's one pretty good example that would make us have to say, sometimes it is okay to question what God and his revealed will is. Uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the garden. Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I know that I, Jesus, I know that I have been sent into this world to die for sinners, and it's going to be a terrible cup, God. If there is any way to let this pass, please let it pass. Please let it pass. Three times he prays that, by the way. If, if you would say that it was bad for Jesus to ask that, then we are all still in our sins, right? Because <laughs> Jesus wouldn't be sinless at that point. So it's not always bad. And in fact, I would say, ask God. <laughs> if you are uncomfortable with what he's asking you to do, ask God. Unless it's just plain as day, right? This is my will for you, uh, that you be sanctified, that you have uh, sexual morality. I've got that right here. Um, see here, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I wouldn't bother asking God about that one. Don't request different. Uh, but, but if it's, you know, you think the Spirit might be leading you in some certain way, it's okay to ask God. In fact, in James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, and he gives generously without reproach. That means he, he won't hold it against you if you come to him with the, the right posture of, God, I just want to know what you really have for me. And so God responds to Abraham, we'll see here, in, uh, starting in verse 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So how does God answer Abraham's request? No. I, I hear you, Abraham, that you would rather it just be through Ishmael, your firstborn son. But no, it is going to be through Sarah, and his name is going to be Isaac. God, he does say, I'll bless Ishmael here. Right? He says, I'll bless him, I'll make him uh, fruitful and multiply him greatly. He'll have these 12 princes, he'll be a great nation. But, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. We could go real deep into that, by the way. Ishmael being the father of the Arabs who have afflicted uh, Israel specifically. Um, very shortly after this time, that, that begins, and it is still going on today, any of the Arab Nations, and I don't bring that up uh, to condemn them. I want their salvation uh, more than anything else. But 
God's answer is no. God's answer is no. We are going to do it this way. We're going to do it my way. We're going to do it the hard way. And we're going to come back to that, okay? But first, let's look at Abraham's response. Abraham's response. When he had finished, this is verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. <laughs> I, I think that's funny, by the way. God says, no, it'll be through Sarah, and then God just goes. We're not going to debate about this, is basically what I get from verse 22. Anyway, verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Abraham obeyed God. So think about this, okay? Chapter 17 started. God reappears to him after 13 years. My covenant is still going to be with you, Abraham. And here is going to be the sign of that covenant. You shall be circumcised. And God tells him who to circumcise and uh, all these things. This will be the sign of that covenant. And Abraham, here is who that covenant is going to come through. Sarai, or now Sarah, not through Hagar and her son Ishmael. And so... Abraham says, God, it would be really nice if we just let Ishmael live before you, if the covenant would be through him. God says, no. And so, in recognition of God's covenant, even the fact that it would be through Sarah and through Isaac, not through Hagar and Ishmael, he obeys it. And I love this. I, I want to draw, uh, I guess it's two points from this. When you think about obedience, Abraham obeys immediately immediately. He doesn't take time. You know what? I'm going to pray about this. God's told me to do this, so I'm just going to think about it for a while. I, I made a request that he change his mind. He said, no. Now I'm going to think about it. No. We see that very day. It's in uh, verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among them, the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Then you see in verse 26, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. That very day, he didn't wait around. He didn't say, you know what? I'm going to obey God when I'm ready for it. I'm going to obey God when I feel like it. I'm going to obey God when the coast is clear. I'm going to obey God when it seems a little bit safer. He obeyed God immediately. And that must be the way that we obey God when he reveals his will to us. Not only that, we see that he obeys God specifically and fully. This could be, I guess, three points, but I'm kind of putting those together. You look at the, the list there. It lists twice in those verses, in verse 23 through 27, it lists twice the people that are circumcised. It says, uh, Abraham took Ishmael his son, and those born in his house, and those bought with money, every male among them. Uh, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin. And then Abraham uh, was circumcised. Then Ishmael was circumcised. And then it goes through that list again. Why does it go through that list? Well, those are the specific groups of people God told him uh, must be circumcised back in verse, uh, I think it's 12. That's uh, uh, that 9 through 14. It, it gives you that. It gives you, yeah, there it is. 9 through 14. It gives you the specifics of who must be circumcised. You, you could read through that, but that's why it lists it. it. Remember, it gave us twice that very day he, he did this circumcision, and then now it lists twice. Here are the specific people that were circumcised. And so I say he obeyed God specifically. He didn't do his version of it, a version that fit his comfort level. And he also did it fully. What, what if he was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just get circumcised and no one will know about it. And then we'll see how that goes. And then maybe I'll do a couple more people. Maybe then I'll do Ishmael a little later. And then maybe I'll start branching. No, that very day he went all in. 
you know how much better our lives would be if we would just go all in when God reveals his will to us rather than dragging our feet, hedging our bets, keeping one foot in obedience and one foot back in disobedience. You know, just in case I need to go back to this. He goes all in with God. All of them are circumcised that very day. 99 years old, 13-year-old son, everyone bought in his household, everyone born in his household, he obeys God immediately, specifically, and fully. Why did he do this? We see in Hebrews 4, uh, 19 through 21, I can just read it for you. I've got it in front of me. Hebrews 4, 19 through 21, it says of Abraham, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Saren's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We're going to get to a, a big principle here. Okay? This is actually helpful for us knowing what the will of God is and how we should direct our entire lives. We see there that he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. As I was reading this passage, I started to wonder, why did God uh, choose Sarah over Hagar? Why did God choose Isaac over Ishmael? What, what was God's purpose in that? Why didn't he just go ahead and use Ishmael? He's already born. He's already 13. He already, you know, got a head start there. I, I thought of a couple reasons. I, I don't want to go too deep into these, um, but one possible reason is, well, she, he, he's maybe illegitimate because he took the second wife. Abraham took a second wife, but I mean, you look at Jesus' genealogy, and it is not a clean genealogy. It would not be uh, any more blemish on the genealogy of Jesus to have one more kind of illegitimate-ish uh, child uh, anyway, you can look through the, the genealogies and, and study that some. So I don't think that that's God's main purpose here in having the child come through Sarah rather than Hagar. What I think the main purpose for God choosing Sarah rather than uh, Hagar is Sarah would b bring God greater glory. Sarah would bring God greater glory. What do I mean by that? What I mean is which is more impressive? Which is more miraculous? Which is more mind-blowing? A child that's born through a young servant girl or a child that's born through a aged and barren woman? <laughs> Which one's more miraculous? You see Abraham even, you know, he, he put his face to the ground and he laughs. Will I really have a child since I'm 99 years old? Will my wife who is 90 really have a child? Even he is like, really? God, you're going to do this? But that's just the point. Because it is that much more impossible, because it is that much more outside of human control, human ability, God says, that's the path we're going to take because it is going to show beyond doubt that I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. You remember that's how God uh, revealed himself at the beginning of chapter 17. I am God Almighty, 17 verse 1. He's about to show it. I'm not going to use this... this human concocted by the, the, the power of man concocted scheme with Ishmael, I'm going to do it even though it's impossible. God is going to use an aged man, now 13 years uh, older than he was when he had Ishmael, and an aged woman who has been barren, barren since the beginning, according to Genesis 11:30. And what I want to submit to you is this isn't just some random occurrence in God's word. This is how God works. This is par for the course with God. Think about it. God <clears throat> uses people like Moses. I, I talked about this on our Wednesday night Bible study a couple weeks ago. We think of Moses as this great leader. He goes in there, let my people go. No, you read <laughs> the account in Exodus he is a guy who, you know, grew up in Pharaoh's household, and then he kills uh, one of Pharaoh's guards. Then the, the Israelites get mad at him as well for trying to be their, their hero. So then Pharaoh finds about, so he has to flee out into the, the land of Midian, and he's out there for 40 more years, so he's 80 years old. Anyway, he's not this strong, 
powerful leader. He's a shepherd. He works for his father-in-law as a shepherd. But God uses him. But God doesn't necessarily use Moses, if you will, to go in there swinging a sword. He uses a rod, right? A staff. Throws it down, turns into a serpent. And then God does these ten plagues to get Pharaoh to let them go. Then when God uh, releases them, he leads them to the Red Sea. Then they turn around and they see that the Egyptian army is now pursuing them. Why would God do that? Well, moments later, God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. The Egyptian army follows them. Boom! Crushed. Does that not bring God greater glory than Moses going in there swinging uh, a sword or something like that? You think about uh, as they're going through the, the wilderness, they don't become this people of strong hunters and gatherers and farmers. They eat bread that literally comes from heaven, manna, right? I mean, that is insane. God took them into the wilderness rather than into some utopia that they could thrive in for 40 years. God receives greater glory for this. You think about when they first go into the promised land, right? What's the first place they take over? Anyone? Big walls. They go tumbling down. Jericho. Why, oh why, did they have to just march around it for days? <laughs> you know, they, they didn't build a single siege ramp. And yet the walls came tumbling down of this mighty, mighty city. Why? Because God wants to show that he is full of power. He is full of glory. You think about Paul once again, the greatest missionary the world has ever known, was a persecutor of the church. God uses him. God is in the business of showing his glory in this world by doing impossible things. I want to turn your attention back to, if you can remember with Paul, Right? He had the, the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 9 and 10. God said to him, Oh, sorry, it's actually not 9 and 10. Anyway, God says, uh, my, my grace is sufficient for you. I don't remember what verse it is. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power will be made perfect in your weakness. So God, that's how God stops him. That's how God says, No, I'm not taking the thorn in the flesh. He says, my grace is going to be sufficient for you, even though you have this affliction. Even though you have this thing that makes it seem like you won't be able, be able to accomplish the mission, my grace is going to be sufficient in you, and my power is going to be shown perfect in your weakness. And this is how Paul responds. I love this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why is it that Christians who follow this very same God, when he tells us to do something impossible, we say, no, 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 I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. No, 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 I, I, I can't figure out how to make that work. We should be boasting in our weakness in the way that God is going to show himself to be glorious and strong. So many of us, myself included at times, live in fear of the revealed will of God. We don't even want to read it sometimes. What if God tells me, what if I open the Bible and heaven forbid it tells me to go tell my neighbor the gospel I don't want to be embarrassed. I, what if they get mad at me? What if my boss, uh, you know, gets mad at me because I tell a coworker? We live in this fear. Oh, I'm, I don't know the gospel well enough. I, I haven't taken an apologetics class. I won't be able to share the gospel with them well enough. Come on. Boast in your weakness. Say, you know what? I'm working at knowing the gospel. I'm working at sharing but I can't change anyone. I can't change the leopard's spots, right? Only God can change a sinner's heart. And so we take heart. We boast in our weakness and say, God, you're going to show yourself glorious because I believe you will work through my insufficiency. You will show yourself to be glorious and sufficient. And so I'm kind of bringing this full circle, okay, for a moment. 
There are many things that God tells us in his word that we must do. There are many things God tells us in his word that we must not do. But that still does not necessarily make us a type of people who are truly in his will. It is not enough to say, oh, I don't get drunk. I don't cuss. I go to church. I tithe. Very cool. You think God's like super glorified by that? (laughs) Is the world impressed by any of that? They're not. I promise. What if the, the, the barometer, what if the ways we made our decisions in life, the way we spend our day, the way we spend our time, the way we interact with others, is what will bring God the most glory in this situation? Yes, we have the do's and don'ts, but what about all the in-between? What about everything else? What if we took this one principle from right here in chapter 17, that God would use Sarah rather than Hagar, that God would use the barren rather than the fruitful, so that his glory would be shown, revealed, experienced by people, enjoyed by people? What if we took that one principle and said, you know what? I don't care what I do as long as God is glorified. I just want God to have the glory. There's a couple sayings uh, that, that I know of that match this. Augustine famously said, love God and do whatever you will. You want to know the will of God for your life? Love God and then do whatever you will. Because guess what? If you love God, if you love the glory of God, you want to see God's glory manifest, you want to experience God's glory, you want others to experience God's glory, if you love God like that, do whatever you will, and it will be amazing. It will be far better than most of our lives are spent. John Piper, a famous quote from him, it's kind of their, his flagship saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you are, for lack of a better word, addicted to seeing, experiencing, and spreading the glory of God, you can do whatever you want. and It will always be in God's will. Because if you you want to see God's glory, you want to reveal God's glory, you want others to see God's glory, you'll obey him. You'll love your neighbor. You will do supernaturally loving things. You will do supernaturally, maybe crazy to everyone else, risky things. You will do things that are less comfortable. You will do things that are are not, not agreeable to the way the world would spend their money, to the way the world would spend their free time. Glorify God. That is God's will for your life, that you bring him glory. You, you could read through it again later. In Ephesians chapter 1, God talks about salvation. And he says, this is to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why he saved you, to the praise of his glory. And so I ask you today to reflect on some things. We'll be having response time in just a moment. But I ask you to reflect on some things for me. We know God is speaking, right? Always. In his word, God is speaking always. Are you listening? Are you listening to God? When you're bored sitting in the the doctor's office, what do you flip to on your phone? Is it God's word or is it something else? I'm not saying going to something else is wrong. I'm just saying, like, are we listening? God's speaking. Are you you spending time with God daily? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. I want to see the path every day. I don't know about you. Are you listening to God? Are you being directed by God? And then secondly, what is driving your actions and your decisions? Is it your comfort? Is it your leisure? Is it safety? Or is it the glory of God that you might experience him, that others might experience him? I had this further up. I don't even know where in my sermon. What is the cost here? I don't even know where it is. So Esther, 
right? You guys might know the story of Esther, Old Testament. They're, they're, they're taken over, and uh, there's some bad people uh, within this, this kingdom that took them over, and one of them says, hey, let's put this law into place that the Jews can be destroyed, right? <clears throat> he, he doesn't realize, none of them realize, that Esther is actually a Jew, and she's become married to the king. Mordecai uh, comes to Esther. He, he's a, a Jew relative of hers and says, hey, you need to go to the king. You need to stand up for us. You need to tell him, plead our case that he wouldn't destroy us. And her response to him is, well, the, the, the law is that I, I don't go, I don't approach him unless he calls for me. I, I can't approach him. He could actually put me to death for approaching him unless he calls for me. And Mordecai, his response goes something like this. I apologize for not being able to find it in my notes, but his response goes, Look, God is going to deliver the Jews one way or another, but if you don't do this, it won't be through you. And, and it, actually, y- your family will be destroyed. <laughs> what I draw from that is, God's glory is going to be revealed in this world. God's glory is going to be experienced by, by millions in this world. The question is, are you going to see it? Are you going to experience it? It. Are you going to even be a part that God uses, a tool that God uses to open the, the, the windows of heaven a little bit into this world and let his glory shine in? He's going to do it. The question is, do you trust him that your life might be a vessel that his glory is shown? So are you listening to God? Is he the one directing your life? And what drives your actions and decisions? Is it the glory of of God. I ask you to reflect on this as I do. Love God and do whatever you will. We're a relatively small church. God has given me big visions for this church, far proportionally bigger than we are of what we will do in this city, in this area, not because we're awesome, certainly not because you have an awesome pastor, but because we serve an awesome God. Let's trust him and let's glorify him. Let's pray.